I want to open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 13 and just tuck your finger in there because I want to tell you a little story before we get to that this morning. A little background. Um, back in the mid-1960s, a... Um, Fire uh, department officer in Palatine uh, had the idea that the same kind of system that used, was used in the city of Chicago to generate an automatic uh, mutual aid response among other nearby stations uh, should be developed for the counties surrounding Chicago. And uh, so he kind of began to share his idea, and in a surprising um, cooperation among departments that are kind of known for bureaucracy, um, everybody bought into the idea. And so uh, out of the mid-1960s came the concept of the mutual aid box alarm system. And basically what that is, is a pre-plan for how to handle um, crises, uh, natural disasters, uh, fires, uh, emergency medical situations that demand more resources than a given department can, uh, can supply. Uh, rather than having a fire officer on the scene realize, wow, this is bigger than we can handle, um, let's see, who can I call? I can call McHenry, I can call... Uh, Fox Lake, I can call Cary, whatever, you know. It, it allows a pre-plan so that all you have to do is say, what do I need here? Well, I need uh, another engine company or I need some tankers or I need some ambulances. How many do I think I need? Okay, I'm going to call that box. We call it a box alarm. I'm going to call that box and uh, then the dispatcher already knows which departments to notify and who's going to get the calls. And all of a sudden, all I have to do is make one decision, request one response, and I get all of this uh, equipment and, and uh, personnel starting to pour my way. So it's a genius plan. And uh, after that was adopted in the 60s, it kind of spread all over the state of Illinois and uh, northern Indiana and Wisconsin, so that now in the state of Illinois alone, there are 62 what are called MABUS divisions, Mutual Aid Box Alarm System divisions. Uh, McHenry Western Lake County is in MABUS Division 5. And um, in order to ensure that every department is up to speed on what they need to respond with, um, once a month what's called a radio drill is, uh, is performed. And basically what that means is no one... Uh, leaves their firehouse, no equipment leaves or goes anywhere. But uh, whichever department in, in a Mabus division is picked to be the um, drill department for the month, uh, they get together and they come up with a disaster or an um, ambulance response or a fire that, that might uh, require a Mabus response. And they make this up. And then they look to see how they would uh, call for mutual aid. And then they simply execute a radio drill. So they call the dispatcher and say, 
Uh, we're going to do a radio drill. We'd like to call uh, Mavis Box whatever for a fire to the third alarm. And uh, then all of a sudden, all the radio traffic begins to go out. And the idea is to see how many departments respond on the radio to everything that they've been asked to provide. And there's kind of an acknowledgement, okay, the system is working. So if you've been with uh, fire rescue and, and uh, emergency medical services for any length of time, you're kind of used to having these drills every month. You know, you kind of, every once in a while, your tones go off and you would hear this and you would think, okay, this is a monthly drill. So in that background, let me bring you up to, up to speed with what I wanted to share. I'm in a Bible study. It's October 25th. 1995, I'm in a Bible study of guys. We're meeting at um, Windhill in the back room, and we're sitting around the round table. We've already uh, been in our Bible study to a certain extent, and I think we had ordered breakfast, and we were beginning to eat breakfast. When my pager opened up, the tones went off, and I paused to listen, and, um, you know, sure enough, what I heard was the monthly radio drill. It said something like this, um, attention, uh, none to fire rescue, Fox River Grove has activated uh, Mavis Division 5 box alarm 5-605 uh, to the fifth alarm for an ambulance response to a train versus school bus accident. And I'm thinking, okay, I can ignore this, this is the radio drill for the month. And then I heard the words I never expected to hear. This is not a drill. Repeat, this is not a drill. You are due with two ambulances. And my heart just kind of dropped because it's the last thing that you ever wanted to have go out over the radio. I excused myself from breakfast and I made my way to the fire station in order to uh, make the second second ambulance out of the fire station, and we were responding to Fox River Grove to this train versus bus. And in my mind, I, I've got all these things going around in my mind. You tend to remember those kinds of things. I wondered what I was going to encounter when I got to the scene. I wondered what kind of... Um, skills and, and, and requirements would be expected of me. I wondered how people were going to be managing and handling it. And when, when we arrived on the scene, we actually found that, um, as it should have been, it was a well-executed, well-managed emergency response with people doing what they were needing to do. But the thing that I noticed is it's like the emergency personnel were kind of wandering around like in a dream. They were acting, they were performing, they were doing what they had been trained to do, but they were like in a fog. Like this isn't real. I'm going to wake up and this is all going to change. I found a school bus in which the body had been completely knocked off the chassis and off to the side. The train was down the tra tracks a bit. I learned that seven students had already been pronounced dead at the scene, and others were en route to the hospital with, uh, from serious to critical injuries. 
And as we begin to kind of try to process all that was going on, the thoughts that go through your mind is, what sense does this make? How did this happen? Why this tragic loss? What's going on here? It was only about six years later that I had, again, done an overnight shift at the fire department. And um, it was Tuesday morning. I had showered and gotten dressed and ready to go to work. And so it took me a little bit of extra time after the conclusion of the shift. And I was headed into the office here when I heard on the radio that an airplane had crashed into the Twin Towers and one of the uh, uh, Twin Towers in uh, New York. And I thought, wow, that's got to be devastating. The day room at the squad had a large, like, 50-inch television flat screen, and I thought, I'll go back to the station and watch this unfolding news. So I turned around and went back to the station. And I remember standing there with about five of the other uh, personnel with the fire department watching the screen, watching the first response of the New York Fire Department and uh, police and uh, moving into a building that everyone else was trying to get out of. You know, we couldn't help but put ourselves in that situation and realize that, that they were going against the flow into harm's way to do what they could to... Uh, save as many lives as possible and get the building clear. You know, and I remember thinking, wow, this is, this is a, a, an incredible disaster. This is a, a tragic kind of thing that's unfolding here. This fire is awful, this, you know, this situation. No one had any idea that a building would, like that would actually collapse. And while we're watching we see a second plane crash into the second tower. And the sickening awareness that this is a terrorist act was the immediate response. This has to be a perpetrated act. Nearly 3,000 people died in New York that day. Over 10% of them were first responders, fire and paramedic personnel, and about 60 police officers and Port Authority officers that went into a building that everyone else was trying to get out of in order to provide as much help as they could when the unthinkable occurred. It is human nature. And it's not just us. It goes back as far as human history. In all cultures and in all times and places, it is human nature to try to make sense of these kinds of tragedies. We want to understand them. We want to know what went wrong. Most people are theistic. They have a sense of belief in God. Sad to say, most people do not have much of an awareness of the devil. And so whenever these kinds of things go on, the kinds of questions that are usually asked is, what was God doing? What was God thinking? Why did God allow this to happen? 
Or why did God do this? And if you have a certain mindset, and this would be true for, for the Jews, it would be true for the uh, Islamic peoples, it would actually be true for many Christians, if not a majority of Christians. We have a sense of judgment and, and retribution and uh, you reap what you sow. And so our questions tend to run, what did they do to deserve this kind of judgment? We could talk about other disasters. I thought about uh, Hurricane Katrina. Uh, smashing into the New Orleans coast. I thought about the tsunami that swept away entire villages in Sri Lanka not too many years ago. I think about those kinds of things, and and I remember after the trade towers uh, collapsed with the terrorist activity and and after Katrina uh, devastated New Orleans and southern Louisiana and the north part of the Gulf Coast, All kinds of self-appointed prophets, radio preachers and TV preachers and whatever, being quoted as saying the hand of God in judgment is on America. The hand of God in judgment is upon the wicked city of New Orleans. And uh, people waxed eloquent coming up with all kinds of ideas of how God was uh, bringing his wrath and his judgment upon us. That's not a thought that's entirely foreign and unwarranted in Scripture. If you go back in the Old Testament uh, and and you read the flood uh, in Noah's time that destroyed the wicked that God sent, or you consider Pharaoh's army that was drowned in the Red Sea, as they were pursuing the Israelites into the wilderness, or you consider Jericho and the land of Canaan, uh, as the Israelites crossed the Jordan and moved into Canaan's land, and under the direction and judgment of God, were to capture the land and destroy the peoples that had polluted the land with their sin from 400 years of godless rebellion. If you consider what happened to the sons of Korah in in the time in the wilderness wanderings and their rebellion and how a very uh, limited uh, kind of earthquake occurred at the hand of God that the earth opened up and swallowed them into a, a, a fiery abyss. It's not like the Scriptures do not give us examples of God bringing judgment upon groups of people for the ripening of their sin and for the judgment that is due them. And so we have a tendency to kind of leap to some natural conclusions that whenever these kinds of catastrophic disasters occur, it must have been the hand of God. God must be behind it and those people must have done something that made them deserve it. We considered a very similar theme last week when we looked at the story of Job, although this morning I'm moving in an entirely different direction, I think, through the Scripture passage that's in front of us. But it was these kinds of things that uh, were in the minds of the crowd that is 
still present. We're coming this morning to Luke 13, and Jesus is still talking to his disciples, and he's still talking to the same crowd that he was when we left him in Luke chapter 12. And as we left Luke chapter 12, he was talking about uh, the doctrines of last things, the end of time. He was talking about judgment. He uh, left us with the words that we need to make uh, friends with our adversary on the way to the court, lest we show up and get thrown into prison. And the underlying message of that was, you're moving toward judgment and you need to make your peace with God. You need to be sure that you're ready. And it's in this context, uh, because the chapter divisions, as you know, did not exist in the original scriptures, it's in this context that Luke tells us that someone in the crowd uh, raises the issue that was a current event in Jesus' day about some Galileans who had come to Jerusalem to sacrifice, uh, to participate probably in the time and region of Passover, and that uh, Pilate had murdered them. Now, I say they came to Jerusalem because people typically did not do their own sacrificing, but there was one time a year where the people participated in the sacrifices. And so we conclude that it was sometime around the Passover event, most likely. And Pilate was noted for those kinds of odious practices. He was not a good guy. Uh, people hated him in, in, in Jerusalem and, and in the surrounding environs of Palestine. They hated him because Pilate was uh, capricious and he was cruel and he was just as likely to order the slaughter of a group of worshipers as he was to do anything else. He, he was just unpredictable that way and really quite fearful. And so, yet, at the same time, the question arises, why would these Galileans, in an act of worship, when they came seeking God, why would they be murdered as they're offering sacrifices? And so they raise the question to Jesus. And we find that in verse uh, 1 of chapter 13, on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? And then Jesus introduces another current event of which they would all have been aware. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. They raise the question that begs the answer, well, yes, they had done something uh, that deserved them getting slaughtered like that. But then we have to raise the question among all things, it, is every time a disaster or a catastrophe or a tragic accident or some kind of uh, weather uh, crisis 
every time that happens, are the people who suffer more deserving of judgment than the people who escape the, the crisis and the, and the devastation. Are the people in the town that was virtually leveled by the tornadoes this past weekend, are they more wicked than the people around them? It's a good question to ask. I'm sure if you were to interview those people, they would have something to say about that kind of uh, accusation. And this is what's in the minds of these people who ask the question of Jesus. And I want to bring out this morning that Jesus seeks to set the record straight. And in doing so, he gives us a different kind of uh, way to look at these kinds of tragedies. I want to say paradigm. Some of you don't like that word, but... uh, it's a paradigm is a kind of a grid through which you analyze the scene or the situation. Uh, Jesus wants to change their viewpoint and give them a different way of looking at this. And basically what he says is those Galileans that Pilate murdered and those 18 fellows that died when the tower collapsed. And by the way, Neither one of these situations made it into extra-biblical records, so we, we don't know exactly what they were talking about. But we do know that the Pool of Siloam was in the corner of one of the wall areas of Jerusalem, and they were constantly working on the walls and working on the temple, and that was one of Herod's, uh, the great big projects that was still underway. And um, in all probability, what happened was a scaffolding had been built to do some work, and it collapsed in 18 of the workers were killed in the collapse. That's the best we can construct from what we have. And Jesus says, do you think those Galileans were worse than the other people in Galilee? Do you think those workers in Jerusalem were worse than the other people in Jerusalem? He said, I tell you, no. That's not the case. And in fact, unless you repent, you're going to face a similar fate. Now, it's at this point that, you know, I'm not quite sure how to express this. Um, There are a lot of ways to die. None of them are good because they all result in death. And... Some may be worse than others, but the fact is that every one of us is going to die unless we're alive when Jesus returns and we're his follower. That's a reality. We're all going to die. We're all going to have to face our own mortality. We're all going to come to an end of ourselves, and after that, there's a judgment. That's what the Scripture says. It is appointed Unto man once to die, Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And in essence, what Jesus is saying is, uh, don't think that because these died together in mass in this tragedy that has made the current events of our time, that they are worse than anyone else. The fact is, they died. And you're going to die. And you need to be 
aware of that reality and you need to repent so that when that moment arrives, you will be prepared. Because not everything that happens, despite what our insurance policies say, is an act of God. And in fact, many things that happen in the world are not an act of God. They occur under His oversight, but there is a sense in which we have introduced sin into this world, and it is running its course, and the consequences that unfold as a result of sin are consequences that beset the human family because of our rebellion against God. Not necessarily because of particular judgment in any given situation, but because we live in a fallen world. And by the way, may I say that one of the most cruel things, and this grieved me even in the time period when I heard it, one of the most cruel things that we can say is, Well, you know what a wicked city New Orleans was. God's just judging those people. Listen, there were Christians in New Orleans that lost their lives. There were believers in New Orleans that lost everything they had. There was, there were churches in New Orleans that were completely destroyed. One of uh, the churches that suffered tremendously was the Christian Missionary Alliance Church, pastored by a man who came out of this very church. Willie Noodle. And they suffered tremendously. And so there were believers in New Orleans. There were believers in the Trade Center. There are believers in these pockets of mass casualty. There are people who love God, who serve Him, who follow Him, who, who are His children. How do you explain that? One of the cruelest things we can do is say, well, it was because those people were so wicked, God's getting even with them. Listen, friends, we are living in a time of grace. We are living in a time when the, when the godly response is with hearts full of compassion and, and breaking with sadness over the human drama and tragedy of the moment. We move into the situation with the love of God and the mercy of God and seek to alleviate suffering in some way that will point them to God who cares so much for them. Unless you have a divine revelation, and I don't think I heard anyone that even came close to having what I would consider divine revelation, we cannot possibly know the eternal and and supernatural motivation behind some of the actions that occurred. And mark my words, and you've heard me say this before more than once, not every natural catastrophic disaster due to weather is the hand of God. You recall how Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves when He was in the boat with His disciples. He would not have rebuked His Father's work. He knew precisely what was going on. Satan was bringing a storm against them in an effort to destroy them and ruin the church and and the life of Christ and nip it in the bud before anything could even be accomplished. That was not the work of God, but it was a terrible storm. It was the work of Satan. 
In fact, the, the catastrophes of this planet, if you go back and look at the origination of the planet, the catastrophes and weather patterns that we experience now are a consequence of the fall, not a result of God's creation. It was not His original design. We are suffering the consequences of sin. And we are suffering the consequences of wicked people. And we are suffering our own consequences. And the whole world is populated by madness and a mess. Into which God sent His Son for the purpose of redemption. And so Jesus says, when these kinds of things happen, they are intended, uh, among other things, if God has a message, the message is, wake up! You're living in a hazardous environment. Wake up! We have to talk about the depths of sin's corruption. And again, let me hasten to say that in every human being, there's a certain amount of good. There's relative good and there's relative evil in, in, in people when we look at it in the horizontal plane, people to people. In every human being, there is a vestige of the image of God. It comes out in our creativity. It comes out in, in our desire to be productive. It comes out in a certain kind of innate goodness. I, I remember in my training in theology, I went through a period of time thinking that total depravity meant that nobody could do anything of any value at any time for any reason, no matter what. But lost unbelievers in times of war have thrown themselves on grenades and taken the blast to save their fellows who were not godly people, but they were noble. And they went to great extremes in the interest of their fellow, people, fellow humans. I worked as a volunteer for many years with the fire rescue service where I was uh, one of very few believers. But I was one of a hundred percent who would risk their lives and give their lives to save other human beings in a moment's notice. And they did so motivated, at least in part, I won't deny a certain addiction to adrenaline that exists in everyone who does that, but at least in part, there was a certain desire to help their fellow human beings. They were there because they cared about people. And they weren't believers necessarily there are great artists who produce beautiful visual art beautiful musical art that that inspires us to worship and they were not necessarily believers there are people who are good family people and seek to do the best by their family and by their children who are not necessarily believers we have to realize that compared with ourselves, there is relative good in nearly everyone. And I say nearly because there are some exceptions. There are villains who just seem to be bad to the core. 
And I think I've met a few of those along the way, too, and, I, and I'm not sure they have any good thoughts. But they, I don't know that they started out that way. And yet, despite the nobility, despite the, the goodness, despite the, the ethic and the artistic and, and the productivity of people and their capacity to love one another, despite that, The scripture says on the same turn, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 3, those verses. There is none that does good at the very depths of the heart. There is none who seeks for God. Everyone has turned to his own way. It's like viper's poison is in their system and under their mouths, and they are evil in their imaginations. The Scripture says the heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? To plumb the depths of our own heart and see the darkness and the blackness that lurks there is impossible to fathom. Human beings who are capable of these incredibly noble acts are capable of some of the most heinous crimes uh, that we can ever imagine. Murders and, and uh, rape and, and mass destruction and and uh, all kinds of things. And then in time of war, under the cover and the guise of the, of the cacophony and the, the, the um, tragedy of all that's going on and the distractions and the noise of war, the hideousness of human beings who destroy each other violently is besides the battlefield. Look at Hitler's Germany and the incredibly horrid things that were done to fellow human beings. Some in the name of science and some just out of pure hatred. And don't think it ended there. Perhaps uh, the six million plus that we can account for in that time frame uh, overwhelms us. But it's going on today in Africa, in South America, in Asia, today, in the Middle East, today, these same things are happening. People are destroying and devouring one another in the most hideous ways. And that too works in the heart of every person. Many analysts who have viewed the period of the Holocaust have said that the most startling and disturbing reality is that the German peoples who moved into that migration of of hideous crimes against humanity, those who participated were before that time normal, everyday family people, buying groceries, going to work, doing normal things, playing with their kids, just like you and me. And many of them, after the fact, were horrified that they could do the things they had done. They were lost in the morass of evil that gripped them. 
And so, Jesus says, Let not any of you think that you can stand and say, I have no sin. I am righteous. Those people deserved it, but I don't. I've lived well. I have done good things. Sometimes we're shocked when things happen to us, and it seems like, why would this happen to me? How many times have we heard this? Why would this happen to me? And the real question is, though it isn't very comforting, why not? What makes you special? Why do you think you stand out and and should be untouchable? When in your heart is the same uh, root of iniquity that is in the heart of every person. And don't make the mistake of thinking that this thing is God's judgment necessarily. It's a risk we take in a hazardous world that is hazardous because of the consequences of sin. And so, Jesus seeks to set the record straight and give them a new way of looking at things. We cannot say just because a disaster has occurred, they deserved it. That's an erroneous conclusion. Nor can we automatically say, God did it. God may have had nothing to do with it at all. We know who did whatever to the World Trade Center. And who knows what was behind the hurricane that struck New Orleans. And we know that the tragic accident in Fox River Grove was a sad, sad, costly error in judgment by a person who never, ever intended to cause harm. It just happened. And now we can't turn back the clock. So Jesus tells the story of a fig tree. He says, there was this fellow that had a fig tree in his vineyard. You can think of a vineyard in in New Testament times as not just vines, but kind of a fruit area. And he has this fig tree, and for three years he has gone to inspect the fig tree, and every time, there are no figs. Well, why do you plant a fig tree? Why do you plant an apple tree? Why do you plant an orange tree? You don't plant one here, but if you could, why would you plant one? Well, because you expect fruit. You want fruit. There's some apple trees in the backyard, and they produce fruit. We can't reach most of it, but the birds do enjoy it immensely. But Jesus says he goes out, and after three years, there's just no fruit on this tree. And, and so he says to the gardener, just cut this down. This is wasting the resources of the soil. It's taking nutrients away from the other plants. Just cut it down and get rid of it, um, and, and we'll let uh, the nutrients benefit those that are being productive. And the gardener responds and says, well, wait a minute. You know, we've just kind of been letting it grow here. 
But let me give it some special attention. I am going to dig around the soil. I'm going to aerate it. I'm going to get it to where the, the moisture and everything can get down to the roots. And let me fertilize it. Let me give it some extra nutrition. Let, let's see what we can do to coax some fruit out of this thing. Let's give it another year. And then if, if at the end of another year it's not productive, well, then I agree we should just cut it down. Now, Jesus is telling a story that has to do with these disasters. And and first you scratch your head and say, what does this unproductive fig tree have to do with these disasters? But the fact is, Jesus is illustrating something about the grace and the patience of God. That all of us are like fig trees. And some of us are completely unproductive. Our lives are not making any difference. They're they're not making sense. We're not connected with God. We're we're not living in vital union with Him. We're not fulfilling our purpose. We're just taking up the soil. You know, we're breathing the air, drinking the water, eating the food, and we're not really doing anything of, of great value and significance. And when you look at these disaster situations and you say, what was the cause of this? Jesus says the question you ought to be asking is, why was I spared? That's the question you need to consider. Why did I escape? Why was I living in Chicago and not New Orleans? You know? Why was I in McHenry instead of the other towns that suffered the tornado damage? Why did I escape? That's the question you need to ask. And when you ask that question, you need to examine your life and you need to ask, am I, am, am I living up to the purpose for which God made me? Am I being productive? Am I producing fruit? Am I doing what God wants out of me? Is my life fulfilling His purposes? Now, when you ask that, I, I realize in saying that, maybe that sounds a little crass, but it's not just that God wants to use us, but He's made us for a reason. He's given us gifts and talents and abilities. He wants to redeem us. He wants to forgive our sin. He wants to draw us back to His heart. He wants to walk with us and live in us and live through us so that our lives become significant and meaningful at a much higher level than just simply sucking air and drinking water. He wants us to count in profound ways. And so, Jesus says, you need to consider. You've got a little more time. Think about that. And respond to the grace, to the love, to the attention, to to the nutrition, to the provision. Respond to God. Respond in a way that stirs your heart up to to serve Him in meaningful ways so that your life becomes valuable. I keep saying things that I keep wanting to fix. So you'll have to pardon me. Um, We all have intrinsic value, but some people are going to die and go to hell. In fact, a lot of people are. The Scripture says, Jesus says the the gate is wide, the path is broad that leads to destruction, and there's a lot of people that go that direction. But the gate is small and narrow and short, and the way is narrow that leads to life eternal, and there's only a few that find it. Make sure that you enter through that straight and tiny gate and move in that narrow way. 
against the tide that you can be fruitful and productive in the kingdom. And so we have time. We have time to respond, time to change. The sad thing, and I won't bore you with the, the grammar of the passage, it's, uh, it's a very interesting um, grammatical construction consisting of two conditional sentences. But here's the essence of what it means. The gardener says, Let's, what if we dig around the soil? What if we fertilize this? What if we give it special nurture? Um, perhaps it will be productive. The contrast is, it's possible, but it's not likely. Because once again, most people just kind of wipe their brow and say, I'm glad I wasn't there when that happened. And they go on with life at best, thinking they escaped the catastrophe, and at worst, patting themselves on the back, thinking, I'm more righteous than those people, God's blessing my life, and not stopping to consider the implications. None of us can stand before God and say, I'm righteous, I don't deserve any mistreatment in this planet. I deserve to be blessed all the time. None of us can say that. But we can respond to a gracious God who gives us more time. And if you're here this morning, even if you know the Lord and you've already settled that part of your decision, if you're here this morning and you've been living for yourself a life that is going to leave you with regrets, you have time right now today, to respond to His grace, to respond to His love, and to move toward Him to be productive and fruitful and a blessing. It's your opportunity. And that's the message that Jesus wants to get across. What about those Galileans? Well, life was cut short for them. And that's tragic. But you're still living. You need to get right with God. You need to straighten it out today. Because you have opportunity. Father, remind us this morning that we do live in a hazardous world. Apart from you, it's not very safe. But with you, we are secure forever. And in you, we have life and vitality and fruitfulness and, and meaningfulness that goes beyond our, our wildest imagination. You can cleanse, you can heal, you can forgive, you can restore the years the locust has eaten. You can bring us back into that fellowship with yourself. And, and we've been given today, this day, make that choice, may we respond in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.